Open up in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 3 as we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians this summer. We find ourselves at the end of Galatians 3, specifically beginning in verse 26. And as you were turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, I would also invite you to stand once again for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to finish the chapter this morning, and we're going to be picking it up right where we left off last week, and that is, again, in verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seats. Typically speaking, one of the the first questions that you might ask a stranger, and I will concede this is probably more true of men than it is women, one of those questions is usually something like, well, what do you do? And by that, we men universally understand what we intend by that question. We mean, what do you do for work? Who signs your paycheck? That's really what we're asking. But there's another question, one that is much more profound and one that is rarely, if ever, asked. And it's the question, not what do you do, but who are you? Who are you? And beloved, the reason that such a question is so profound is because it gets right down to the idea of identity. Of identity. And as you are no doubt aware, uh, identity is really all the rage these days. Evolution has catechized generations into thinking that you and I are nothing more than primates that happen to wear clothes. Building on that shoddy premise, secularism has catechized, catechized countless others. We are told that we are nothing more than the, the random result of matter and motion. We are just bags of water held together by meat. We're cosmic accidents. We are sort of purposeless chemical reactions. Sort of stardust just bumping into other stardust. And of course, of course the, the seeds of that demonic ideology have brought forth a foul harvest. I would just say sort of in passing, when we're talking socially or culturally, you need to recognize that when it comes to things like homosexuality or abortion or transgenderism, it really is a question of identity. It's a question of who are we? And so this idea of identity is massive. It's foundational. And perhaps in a lot of ways, that is nowhere more true than when it comes to being a Christian. 
in a lot of ways, being a Christian is you and I getting comfortable recognizing our new identity. You see, a Christian in a lot of ways is you and I getting comfortable in the fact that Christ has come on our behalf, that he has died a sacrificial death, that he has paid for our sin, and that he has in his grace given us a new identity. And so most of the Christian life is you and I living in light of this new identity that Christ has given to us. And I should add, it's this sort of truth that Paul here in Galatians 3 has really been pressing into, this idea of identity. You will remember the Judaizers. Those are those sort of snakes that are wreaking havoc upon the churches that are scattered abroad in Galatia. They were proclaiming a distorted gospel. And I say that because their gospel had a twisted view of identity they would say very quickly, Christ is enough. Yes, you need Christ. But you also need Moses, they would say. Say you need the law. You need circumcision. They would tell those in their churches that if you want to stand right in God's sight, not only do you need to embrace Christ, but you also need to to get hard, get to work on yourself. You need to be a better person. Paul has labored to show, though, that all you need is Christ. And all you need is Christ because it is Christ's blood that washes away our sins. It is Christ's death that satisfies the wrath of God. And it is Christ's righteousness, not yours, that will able you, enable you to stand before God on Judgment Day. And so all of this, whether we're talking about forgiveness or cleansing or eternal life or righteousness, the point is we lay hold of all of this by faith. And as we lay hold of all of this by faith, please hear this, we have a new identity. In Christ, as the Scriptures tell us, we are new creatures. To see this, put your eyes on verse 26. And as you do, I would pray that you would see how revolutionary and astounding and scandalous it is. Catch this. Writing to a group of churches, those who, I presume like us, dirty, rotten Gentiles. Those who who all they have done is simply turn to Christ by faith. How are they addressed in verse 26? What is their identity? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. You see, in the gospel, we become sons of God. I I would have you to remember, back in Galatians 3.7, Paul went so far as to say that Christians are children of Abraham. Know then, Galatians 3.7, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So, so when we're talking about things today that are so important in our culture, skin color, family tree, your last name, 
in, in the time of Paul's writing, whether or not you've been circumcised. The point that Paul is making here is that none of that is definitional. None of it actually determines one's identity, at least spiritually speaking. Now, let, 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 let's recognize there were and there are ethnic Jews. There is a physical and outward Israel. That is all true, of course. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, what matters is this. Are you part of spiritual Israel? To use Paul's own language from Romans 2, are you a Jew inwardly? And the only way that anybody is a Jew inwardly is by receiving Christ and resting in Christ and relying upon Christ. Now that truth is shocking in its own right. The fact that Gentiles, Gentiles can be sons of Abraham. That's nuts. And, and again, Gentiles don't become sons of Abraham by becoming Jewish. No. We become sons of Abraham by entrusting ourselves to the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus. And so again, Paul has been pushing the pedal to the metal. Here he continues, all gas, no brakes. Because not only are those who trust in Christ sons of Abraham, but those who trust in Christ are also, middle of verse 26, sons of God. And that should take our breath away. Because if you recognize where you've come from, if you recognize that you were Ephesians 2.1 born dead, dead in trespasses and sins. And that the only way that you have been made alive is by the grace of God revealed in the cross of Christ. That you've truly been reconciled to God, not because of who you are, not because of what you have done, not because of your resume, but all on account of Christ. It's that truth that should humble us and take our breath away. And what Paul is saying here is something like this. We have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ. Not first so that we can be servants, but so that we can be His sons. Perhaps one of the reasons that we don't reel from this scandalous truth is again because we're Gentiles and we don't feel the weight of it. Catch this, for for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands really, the Jewish people thought themselves to be privileged. After all, they were alone the sons of Abraham. They had birth certificates to prove it. Out of all the nations on the planet, they were, according to Exodus 4.22, the son of God. And as God's son, Israel had God's law. It was Israel who had the temple. It was Israel who had the priesthood and the sacrifices. It was the nation of Israel that had circumcision and ancestry. They really were uniquely God's son. And yet... According to our passage here, it is Christians 
who are sons of God. How can this be? How can anyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, it doesn't matter, how can anyone be a son of God? Well, verse 26 thunders through faith. That is how we are, beginning of verse 26, in Christ Jesus. How are we in Christ Jesus? Well, it is through faith. And because, verse 26, we are in Christ Jesus, through faith, we are also sons of God. Notice, you don't apply for this. Notice there's, there's not something about you that catches God's eye. Notice that you don't somehow become eligible uh, for this because of something that you have done. The point is, sons of God are sinners redeemed by Christ. That's how you get into the family. If anybody ever becomes a son of God, it is through the Son of God. And don't miss the fact that this is all polemical. It's got teeth. We are children of Abraham, and we are sons of God, and therefore we are bona fide members of God's covenant people. How? Well, not on account of Moses. Not because somehow you or I have, have tallied up enough you know, lines in the wind column because we've kept God's law. It's not owing to our circumcision. Neither is it owing to you and I's spiritual devotion or our religious rights or our stalwart willpower. It's all based solely on account of who Christ is and what Christ is is done. You and I, we have got to get this settled in our hearts and our minds. We don't bring anything to the table. The only thing that qualifies you is the fact that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. And of course, this is the bell that Paul has been ringing throughout his letter to the Galatian churches. Christ really is enough. Christ really did it all. Your sins actually being forgiven. You are being able to stand right in God's sight. You being welcomed into the kingdom of God, brought into God's very family. None of it is owing to how well you perform. We never come to God with resume in hand as if we can somehow add to the all-perfect work of Jesus Christ. We come by simple faith, by, by empty hands, lifted up to God, receiving all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us. And as we lift up those empty hands of faith, bringing nothing, what we receive, brothers and sisters, is Christ. And in receiving Christ, we receive a new identity. Now, speaking of this new identity, it's made visible. It's, it's sort of like revealed and publicly declared how. When? Well, the answer is in the waters of baptism. 
That's how verse 27 explains it, how it connects. We're told, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, now this passage in itself, it presents two realities, and, and I think both of them need to be fleshed out. The first revolves around baptism, and the second, this idea of putting on Christ. We'll start with baptism. When it comes to baptism, this passage and Paul's sort of argument here that's, that's just below the surface, it will only make sense if you and I have eyes to see how significant baptism was in the life of the early church. Now, here's the deal. I, I'm, I'm going to be sensitive here because I know we all come from, some ver from varying backgrounds. So I'm, I'm going to walk on eggshells, but I'm still going to walk. So, so just bear with me, and if you have any further questions, I would be more than willing to sit down and talk with you after the service. But the fact of the matter is that baptism and conversion were intimately related in the life of the early church. And by early church here, I mean like the book of Acts and the New Testament letters. They were so intimately related, that is baptism and conversion, that to believe and to be baptized, they went together hand in glove. This is why, for example, sometimes the call in Scripture is to believe. You might think of Acts 16.31 and Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer's question, what must I do to be saved? Paul's response as no doubt most of you are aware. Acts 16.31 Believe in the Lord Jesus. But then you have other instances where Scripture doesn't mention belief at all and actually exhorts us to be baptized. Here you might consider Acts chapter 2 following Peter's Pentecost sermon. There were those who heard Peter's sermon Peter proclaimed the gospel to them, and we we're told that they were cut to the heart, and they asked the preacher, what shall we do? You remember what Peter's answer was? It was repent and be baptized. So the question is, well, which is it? Is it believe or be baptized? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, because to believe in Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Or, or we might say, at least according to the New Testament, belief and baptism are not viewed as these distant, long-lost cousins, but they're actually siblings. In fact, they might even be twins. But this strikes us as strange. I recognize that. In sort of modern American evangelicalism, this idea is altogether foreign. It's not uncommon to have professed Christians wait years and years and decades to be baptized, as if baptism is some optional thing that Jesus just leaves up to you and I. Do you want to shop at Winco or Yokes? That's your decision. Do you want to be baptized or not? It's up to you. But church, that's not the picture that is painted in Scripture. In fact, 
Jesus' very first step to following him is what? Well, it is to be baptized. Remember what, what we call the Great Commission? Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And we skip baptizing them. We go right to teaching them all things that I have commanded to you. We're a church that likes to teach things. We like to know things. We like information and content. We're brains on a stick. But we forgot that in the middle of the Great Commission, before Jesus says anything about teaching, he says to baptize them. And so baptism, it would appear, is something like the training wheels of the Christian life. It's how, it's how we start. It's the beginning. And so given King Jesus' marching orders, it should come as no surprise to us that when you and I turn to the book of Acts, what do we discover? Well, we discover a couple of things that initially make us uncomfortable. First, we recognize that the gospel is not to be confined to the four walls of the sanctuary. The church in the book of Acts is constantly pressing out and pressing into the world, proclaiming the gospel. And as the gospel is proclaimed, there is not only hostility and opposition, but there is also repentance and faith. People are converted. And then what happens to those converted people? Well, they are baptized. And so a lot of ways, that's the order or the pattern that you see. Belief is immediately followed by baptism. And I should add that baptism is immediately followed by belonging. In other words, you trust in Christ, you are baptized in Christ, and then you join Christ's church. You have belief, baptism, and belonging. Again, that's the, the order, the pattern of the New Testament. Now, I would ask that you would forgive me for that brief detour. But that's why redeeming grace, when Paul writes to these, remember, Galatians is not a letter to one church. It's a letter to a bunch of churches in sort of a general area. And so there are multiple churches that are receiving this letter. And when Paul writes to the plural churches of Galatia, what is his assumption? Well, his assumption is that they have all, verse 27, been baptized into Christ. How can Paul make that assumption? Well, because that's what Christians do. Christians express their faith in and their commitment to Christ through the waters of baptism. Now, I also need to be quick to add that baptism doesn't save a single person. I think we know this, but it is always good to remind ourselves of these things. There is nothing magical about the water. No amount of soap in the baptismal font will be able to cleanse your soul. Only Christ saves. Only His blood washes us clean. Only His righteousness credited to sinners like you and I by grace alone, through faith alone, will ever enable us to stand right in God's sight. Not only will baptism not do that, baptism can't 
do that. But here's where evangelicals trip up. Just because baptism is not quote-unquote essential, neither does that mean that baptism is insignificant or unimportant. We have to be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. We know that baptism is significant because not only does Christ in the Great Commission command us to be baptized, and that should be enough to settle the issue, shouldn't it? But baptism, like the Lord's Supper, is a sacrament ordained by Christ for His church. In other words, Christ has instituted baptism to be a source of blessing to us. To sort of be a a place in which God pours out His grace upon us. It is, if you like, an aqueduct in which the gospel waters reach and refresh our souls. To drill down on this just a little bit and then I'll get off of it. In, In Reformed theology, we refer to baptism as both a sign and a seal. A sign and a seal. And by that we mean this. Baptism is a sign in that it signifies something. It it points beyond itself to something else. What is that, you ask? Well, baptism is a sign or it signifies you and I being washed and made clean. In this case, from our sin. So as someone is plunged into the waters and covered head to toe, it is a picture of that person being washed and made new by the blood of Christ. But again, the waters don't do that. Baptism is a sign. Baptism is not the substance. Baptism points to Christ's forgiveness. A forgiveness won for us in His bloody cross. We also speak of baptism as a seal. And by that we mean this. Like a seal on a passport marks it as valid or authentic. So through baptism, we are visibly confirmed as belonging to the people of God. You might think of it in these terms. Baptism, in a lot of ways, is like our badge. It's it's our jersey. It's, It's sort of like a tattoo for the Christian. It brands them. It marks them out as God's people and the recipient, not just of Christ Himself, but of all of Christ's gospel promises. That all brings us to sort of the second reality of verse 27, and and they are connected. We read, for as many of you in verse 27 were baptized into Christ, we are told have put on Christ. So, So what does it mean to put on Christ? Well, to be baptized into Christ is to have a new identity. Stay with me. What is made visible and clear and evident to all, even as the person comes up out of the water and the water is dripping down from the chin. What is made evident is that this person, this baptized person now, something is different. Something is new. Something has changed. 
they now belong to God. After all, they've had God's name placed upon them, haven't they? This is why ministers of the gospel, when they baptize, they baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Like when the courts finalize an adoption and the son or the daughter legally now has a new name, and catch this, with that new name, a new what? A new identity. So it is in baptism. The Christian has put on, verse 27, Christ. No longer is the identity of the Christian one that is, that is defined as being in Adam or in self or in sin. Now we are back to verse 26, in Christ Jesus. We have verse 27, put on Christ. We are so united to Christ. We are so wrapped up in Him that Christ is now our new identity. You might think of it in terms of sports. I remember being very tiny, tinier than I am now, a wee little lad, and my father signing me and my little brother up to play grid kids football. The best part of that experience was simply getting the pads, getting the jersey, actually getting a football helmet. When you're like 10 years old, that is the coolest thing in the world. And the point is, come Saturday, when I would put on that uniform, my identity would immediately change. I would now march out onto that field as a panther. That, that, they, that, what was the name? I remember that. We were the Panthers. It had to be something mean and scary. That was my new identity. I was no longer just me. I was part of a team, and, and I had a new mission, a new life, a new identity. Well, similarly, the Christian has a new identity. And it is evidenced, not as we put on the pads and the helmet, but as we are immersed into the waters of baptism. We have a new jersey. We belong to Christ. We put on Christ. Christ is now ours and we are His. All our sin has been taken away. All His righteousness has become ours. We have again, verse 27, put on Christ. Therefore, and this is big and fundamental, therefore, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You catch that? Through the Gospel, through our faith union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now a new people and possess a new identity, which means our old identity, the stuff that's listed there in verse 28, that is now not what defines us. Again, to circle back, this is, this is massive, especially in our day and age of identity politics. What is identity politics, you ask? Well, it's the idea that everyone can very easily and neatly sort of be diced up and put into a particular quadrant. 
And so uh, those with letters after they na- their names, they, they feel the need to, to dice people up based upon their skin color or their nationality or their gender or their sexual orientation or their social background or their economic class. And then, once you're all cut up and divvied up, depending on sort of what quadrant you are placed in, you are de facto either saint or sinner. And again, we see this cashed out in real time all the time today. This is why you have whole segments of the population setting their hair on fire, thinking that the single biggest threat to our country is straight white Christian men. That is identity politics come home to roost. Here's the deal, and it's also good news. The gospel works in such a way where it reorients us and actually recreates us so that what is fundamental about us is no longer what is merely revealed on your driver's license. You know what I mean? Your skin color, your last name, your gender, your address, all of a sudden, that is not what matters, even though that's all that matters to the world. What truly matters is this. Are you in Christ? Do you belong to Him? Have you come to Him by faith? Which is really just another way of saying, have you given up on yourself? That's what faith is. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Biblical faith is you looking in the mirror going, ah, I can't trust in that. It's faith is you giving up on all of your activities and accomplishments. Faith is you giving up on all of your doing and all of your determination. Faith is you giving up on all of your works and all of your willpower and simply going, I can't do it. Christ has to do it all for me. That is faith. And so the question is, are you in Christ? Have you come to Christ in faith? Have you been brought under deep conviction for your sin? So much so that you know down into the depths of your heart that apart from Christ, all that you deserve is the judgment and wrath and hell of God. And in seeing the horror of your sin and all that you deserve for your sin, in seeing that you are a stench and a wretch and an offense to God, have you then fled to Christ in refuge? You see, that is all that matters. No one gives a rip what color your skin is. It means nothing in the grand scheme of things. Whether you live on a hill or whether you live in a home that has wheels on it, it means nothing when it comes to the church. It means nothing in terms of eternal life and the kingdom of God. The question is, have you put on Christ? And if you have, you have a new identity that trumps everything that the world places its stock in. 
Now, I don't want to be misunderstood, and, and, and I don't want to suggest, and neither does Paul, that the distinctions in verse 28, that somehow they evaporate. That's not it. Those distinctions in verse 28, they continue to exist. So, so ethnic and social and sexual distinctions are real and they continue to exist and they will continue to exist in this life. So for example, if you are a physical Jew, becoming a Christian doesn't change that. You still have the same last name. If you are a slave on Monday, you are converted to Christ on Tuesday, that does not automatically mean that come Wednesday, you are free. And if you are a man, no amount of lipstick will make you a woman. All of these distinctions do exist and will continue to exist. Fair enough. So what then is the nail that Paul is hammering in verse 28? Simply this. All of those distinctions that the world gets so up in arms over, they have no bearing, no bearing, no bearing at all when it comes to you and I standing before God. So, if you are a Jew and I am a Gentile, and we are both Christians, then you are no closer to God than me. If I happen to be on food stamps and you happen to belong to the coveted 1%, you are no more, no more part of the church than I am. And just because I am a man and you are a woman, that doesn't make me any more righteous than you. And the reason this is the case is because in and of ourselves, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, He comes to all of us in exactly the same way. Which means, and this really is the crux of the matter, what verse 28 is getting at is this, that we are all on equal footing before the cross of Christ. Or maybe another way to go after it, and this might get us a little bit closer to Paul's point, like his immediate context with the Galatians. What matters is not the blood that is flowing through your veins, but the blood that flowed through Christ's veins. This is why you can say in verse 28, for you are all, right? Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That is to say, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And if you were to scratch your head and ask, well, how can that be? The answer is as simple as it is glorious. It's because we all come into the kingdom the same way and stay in the kingdom the same way, mind you. We all come in by grace alone, through faith alone. Which means really when you get to verse 29, you get to something of sort of the zenith of Paul's argument. The, the crescendo, if you will. How does all of this get cashed out? Verse 29 answers. And if you are Christ's, right, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
we need to unpack this very briefly because it is beautiful and life-giving and glorious and awe-inspiring. To begin with, notice the structure of the passage. It is an if-then statement. If the former is true, then the latter is true. So Paul says, if you are Christ, that is to say, if you are in him, if, if you have received Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel, if that is true of you, then, verse 29, you are Abraham's offspring. To be one is to be the other. If you are Christ's, then you are children of Abraham. And if you are true children of Abraham, then you are Christ's. And how is it that you and I become children of Abraham? I pray that by now we all know the answer. It is by faith. This has been the whole thrust of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It is by faith that we receive this new identity. This identity of being in Christ and being Abraham's children. Now let me just pause for a second and say that again, I, I think it's, we, we can probably scarcely imagine how shocking this declaration is, especially in the face of the Judaizers, those false teachers who were preying upon the churches. Remember, they said you can be right in God's sight and, and you can be assured of your salvation and, and you can be part of the people of God. That stuff's all true if, if you do this and you check that box and you cross this T and you dot that I, then, then we'll be good. The Paul says may never be. We are right in God's side and we are brought into the family of God the same way Father Abraham was. By faith. Now here's the really good part. Owing to our identity, what do we receive? End of verse 29. We are heirs according to promise. This is thrilling. At least it should be. It ought to, to cause our spirits to sing. Notice what Scripture says about us. We are heirs. And that language of heirs, what does it put front and center except the idea of family, right? To be an heir in the ancient world, it meant you were part of a particular family. If that wasn't enough, this idea of heirs, it also conjures up in our minds, and rightfully so, the idea of inheritance. It's not just that we are part of the family, but as verse 26 says, we are sons of God. And as you know, in the ancient world, it was the sons who received the inheritance from the father. More than that, the same idea of heirs has covenantal overtones. Here's what I mean. In the Old Covenant, Abraham was heir to the promises of God. And originally, those promises revolved around Canaan, what we typically call the promised land. But as we know from the New Covenant, Canaan was but a type. It pointed to something bigger, something altogether better. Taking this all together, these rich concepts of sonship, and errors, and inheritance, and covenant. 
what are, take this all together, what are the gospel promises that are being poured out upon us? As God's people, what do we receive? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we receive every spiritual blessing. Not some, not a lot, not most. Every single one. And so, kind of going back through the book of Galatians, think, when it comes to spiritual blessings, think forgiveness of sins. Think your justification before God and His law. We are adopted into God's family. It is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit given to us that you and I cry out, Abba, Father. Christ's righteousness is now ours. It is His holiness that sets us apart. His faithfulness is credited to our account. Hope is part of our DNA. Resurrection glory is our future. And right now, in these very moments, Christ is at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, assuring that none of His people will be lost. Beloved, that is our inheritance. But that's not all. You know what else we are promised? Not just our personal resurrection and all its attendant glory, and that is enough that to cause our hearts to beat out of our chests, but we are also promised that we will inherit a new and resurrected world. Remember, that's what Canaan looked forward to. Church, we do not inherit merely a piece of real estate somewhere in the Middle East. What Christ has won for us is a new heaven and a new earth. That is what awaits us. It is glory upon glory upon glory. And in all of it, we will have the unique privilege of enjoying the blessed presence of Christ. You go all the way back to the beginning, and, and what do we find Adam and Eve doing except walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, enjoying the presence of God. Well, so you and I, on that day, we will see and savor Jesus Christ in all His glory. You know what the best part of all of this is? It's all by grace. You know how we know that? Because of the very last word of verse 29. We are heirs according to promise. Which means the promises of God are not dangled out in front of us as if they were a carrot. Our inheritance as the sons of God is not contingent upon you and I hopping on a spiritual treadmill and doing a good job. Each and every gift, they come to us by the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Or to say the same thing differently, verse 29 does not read, I repeat, does not read, we are heirs according to performance. Not performance, but promise. Our inheritance is something we get, not something we gain. 
It is all of grace. It is all by faith. It is all based on Christ. And therefore, it is all to the glory of God. Now, we began by noting how central identity is. Step back with me for a brief moment. And as you do, I would invite you to revel in your identity. Christian, who are you? Not according to what the world says, and not according to what your driver's license reveals, but in Christ, who are you? What is your identity? Well, we are Abraham's children. That is to say, we are the people of God. We have put on Christ so that Christ and all his benefits are ours. We are sons of God, meaning we've been brought into the family of God. And we are heirs, not according to performance, but according to promise. That's our identity. And every syllable of it, the whole kitten caboodle, is something we receive by grace through faith in Christ alone. Join with me in prayer. Our Father, we would ask that your Spirit would cause these truths of your Word to penetrate into our hearts and to bring forth joy. We pray that that the truth of who we are in Christ, that it would breed in our own lives and in our families and in this congregation, not a spirit of, of pride or hubris, but of humility of a recognition that all that you have done for us is what all you have done for us. So give us joy. Give us hope. Give us assurance. And then we pray with your Spirit's help, enable us to walk in light of who we are in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.